The Bible is filled with remarkable stories. Some can strike the reader as strange, but I maintain that they're not there by chance. Even the most bizarre stories somehow show forth God's glory, reveal His character, and tell His story. Our our current series is born of an article penned by a freelance writer named Chara Donahue. She wrote a a piece on ten unpreached sermons, ten topics never before broached, ten stories never preached on in the history of civilization as we know it. So I decided to pick up the gauntlet, accept the challenge, and tackle the topics she offered. I'll use her topics, I'll use her titles, and I'll preach them in the order that she listed them. I believe God can and will speak to us through them because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, it says in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And all Scripture is profitable for, re- for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be mature, that the man of God may be complete, that the man of God may be entire, perfect, thoroughly furnished unto every good works. Part three of the ten unpreached sermons is called Saul and the Sorceress at Endor. Today's story is found in 1 Samuel chapter 28, but first, a quick detour into 1 Samuel chapter 8. Now, it's interesting to me as I've started this new series a couple weeks ago, 10 Unpreached Sermons, how it still all goes back to the summer series. The summer series was called Bloom Where You're Planted on the Life of Joseph. It was the story of Joseph rising in power in the land of Egypt during a a time of great famine. Joseph used his position, as you remember, his position of influence, to bring his father and his brothers to Egypt to preserve them in a time of of deprivation. Over Over the course of time, the Hebrew people multiplied in Egypt, and as the years passed, they were oppressed and compelled to do physical labor as ordered by Pharaoh, king of Egypt. After 400 years of bondage, God raised up Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egypt into the wilderness where they would wander aimlessly for 40 years. It was here in the wilderness where part one of the series, the ten unpreached sermons, the story of Korah and his failed coup took place. After Moses died, it was Joshua who led the Hebrew people into the promised land, the land of Canaan. And when Joshua died, they entered a period of 500 or so years where judges like Othniel and Deborah and Samson and Gideon ruled. It was during the time of the judges where we learned of King Eglon of Moab and his assassination at the left hand of Ehud in part two, the loss of a sword for the death of a king. After the period of the judges, the people of Israel desired a king. 
That brings us to 1 Samuel chapter 8, beginning in verse 4, it says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel. Samuel was the prophet. Verse 5, Behold, thou art old, they said to him, and your sons walk not in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Samuel the prophet was not happy with their foolish request. And he tried to talk them out of it. Listen to to verse 11 and following. Samuel says, This will be the manner of the king that will reign over you. He will take your sons. He'll appoint them for himself, for his chariots, to be his horsemen. And some of your sons will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over thousands, captains over fifties. He will set them to ear his ground, to reap his harvest, to make his instruments of war and instruments of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be confectionaries and to be cooks and bakers. He will take your fields and your vineyards and your olive yards, even the best of them, and give them to his servants. He'll take a tenth of your seed, of your vineyards, and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your men servants, your maid servants, the goodliest of your young men and your donkeys, and he'll, he'll put them to his work. He'll take a tenth of your sheep, and you shall be his servants. And you shall cry out in that day because of your king which you have chosen, and the Lord will not hear you. But the people were a stubborn lot, and they wanted a king, and their reasoning was disturbing. Verse 19 of 1 Samuel 8. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but give us a king to rule over us, that we may be like all the other nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Verse 22, And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto their voice and give them a king. Maybe this is the most profound statement I'll say all morning. Just because you get what you want doesn't mean it was God's will. The people of Israel wanted to be like the heathen nations. They didn't want God watching over them and protecting them and providing for them. They wanted to do whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted. And when we want that, eventually God says, go for it. He gives us over to our own desires. He he gives us over, the Bible says in, in the book of Romans, to a reprobate mind. It's a powerful moment here in the history of Israel. It's not an overt rejection of God. It's it's more a decision to go their own way. This is the decision many of us make. We don't choose to follow Satan. We're not blatantly choosing sin and debauchery. We're not consciously rejecting heaven. We're just choosing our own way. And the reality is, It's a road that leads away from God. The decision Israel made introduced the reign of the kings. And for 500 years, kings like David, Solomon, 
Hezekiah, Josiah, and Jehu, and a host of others, a few good, most evil, would reign over Israel and Judah. The first of the kings would be King Saul. Saul was a Benjaminite, the son of Kish. He was a courageous warrior and a man of striking physical size, according to the Bible, a lot like me, perhaps. <laughs> and, being, and after being appointed king by Samuel the prophet, Saul mobilized the armies of Israel and he gained several significant victories over the rival Philistines. But after those early successes, some unpleasant traits began to emerge in King Saul. He was jealous, rash, proud, violent, and depressed. Saul began to drift from God. It eventually manifested itself in blatant disobedience to God and to his mentor, Samuel. It's here, with Saul on the run from God, where we pick up the story, the third of our ten unpreached sermons, Saul and the sorceress at Endor. Let me pray. Lord, thanks for the opportunity this morning to contemplate where Saul is at, the people of Israel, where they were at. They wanted a king to be like the other nations. Someone to judge them and lead them out and to fight their battles for them. I wonder how often we want that. Lord, my prayer, my heart's desire is that when this message is all said and done, we'll be reminded again of, of, of how we want you to be in that role in our lives. We want to, to look to you. We want to hear your voice. We want you to lead us. We want you to judge us. We want you to fight our battles. So Lord, I pray that'll be what settles in our heart today in Jesus' name. Amen. Saul's situation had deteriorated. He was holding on to the throne at this point by a thread. There was clearly a void in his life without God. He was operating in his own strength and solely on the resources available to him as king of Israel. When Samuel the prophet died, Saul's last remaining connection to God was lost. Where, where would he turn? Who would he look to now? Saul became a desperate man. And desperate people sometimes do desperate things. The scenario we look at in 1 Samuel 28 now emerges out of King Saul's desperation. Saul ignores his own edict, outlawing sorcery, and, and he consults a medium, a witch, in an effort to communicate with his former mentor, Samuel, who, as I mentioned, had died. Verse 3 of 1 Samuel 28 now. Before we were reading out of chapter 8, now we're reading out of chapter 28. Verse 3 says, Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel lamented him, and buried him in Ramah, even his own city. And Saul had put away those that had familiar spirits and the wizards out of the land. And the Philistines gathered themselves together and they came and pitched in Shunem and Saul gathered all Israel together and they pitched in Gilboa. Now this speaks of the two armies. 
So the Philistines are, are, are in battle array here. The Israelites are in battle array here. Verse 5, And when Saul saw the host of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart greatly trembled, the Bible says. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord answered him not, neither by dreams, nor by the prophets, nor by the Urim. The Urim was a device that was used in Old Testament times by the prophets and by the kings to discern the will of God. Casting lots, if, if you will. Then said Saul to his servants, Seek me a woman that has a familiar spirit, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a woman that has a familiar spirit at Endor. The term familiar spirit is, is, is from the Latin term meaning household servant. And it conveys the idea that sorcerers and mediums had spirits as servants ready to obey their commands. Those attempting to contact the dead, even to this day actually, usually have some sort of a spirit guide who communicates with them. These are what are referred to here as familiar spirits. So, so Saul approached the witch at Endor. I'm sure some of you, uh, either you're old enough or by the miracle of MeTV, remember and know of the TV show, popular show from the late 60s, early 70s, Bewitched. Right? And story of a, uh, a female witch that uh, marries a mortal man. And interestingly enough, the, the, the wife's mom, the witch's mom, her name is Endora. And here we have Saul consulting with the witch of Endor. Somebody had a Bible back then. Verse 8 of chapter 28, Saul, not hearing from God, Approaching the witch at Endor, verse 8, Saul disguised himself, and he put on other clothing, other raiment. And he went, and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night, and they said, I pray thee, divine unto me by the familiar spirit, and bring me him up whom I shall name unto you. And the woman said, Behold, you know what Saul has done, how he cut off those that have familiar spirits and the wizards out of the land, why then do you lay a snare for my life to cause me to die? Saul swore to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord lives, there shall no punishment happen to you for this thing. Then said the woman, Whom do you want me to bring up to you? And he said, Bring me up Samuel. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried with a loud voice, and the woman spake to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me? For, for you are Saul. And the king said unto her, Be not afraid. What did you see? And the woman said to Saul, I saw gods ascending out of the earth. And he said unto her, What form is he of? And she said, An old man cometh up, and he's covered with a mantle. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel. And he stooped with his face to the ground and bowed himself. And Samuel said to Saul, Why hast you disquieted me to bring me up? And Saul answered, I'm sore distressed, 
For the Philistines make war against me, and God is departed from me and answers me no more, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore I have called thee, that you may make known unto me what I should do. Verse 16, Then said Samuel, Why do you ask of me, seeing the Lord has departed from you and become your enemy? For the Lord has rent the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, even to David. Because you uh, obeyed not the voice of the Lord, nor execute his fierce wrath upon Amalek, therefore has the Lord done this thing unto you this day. Verse 19, Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with thee into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow shall you and your sons be with me. Now one reason this passage is not preached on is because many are unsure of what actually happened here. Bible scholars and preachers have trouble explaining why Samuel appeared to Saul and what is significant about what is actually said there. So so let's get this taken care of right off the top. It's not Samuel called back from the dead. It's a demon spirit. It's not Samuel. It's a demon. Let me give you three... Three proofs why that's true. Three evidences why, that's, why it's not Samuel. Number one, it was already established that God had departed from Saul. He would not answer by any means. Why would he choose to answer by this means? Second, the Bible clearly states in scores of scriptures that we're not to traffic with demons, we're not to communicate with the dead. Therefore, God would not allow Samuel to communicate through a witch to Saul. Number three, and this is interesting, the demon tipped his hand as to his true identity when he said, and tomorrow shall you and your sons be with me. Saul is as lost as lost can be. Where would he be when he died the next day? And and when I prepared the notes, I had those three. In in the time since I prepared the notes, there's there's a fourth. I really believe, in fact, it was this morning as I was going through this, uh, one final time, I believe God gave me this fourth reason. No extra charge for this. The demon, the demon only makes Saul feel guilty, right? So look at that conversation. So here's Saul, or yes, King Saul, and he's, a, he's, a, he's looking to hear from Samuel. He's looking to hear from God, really. And, and the demon, the perceived Samuel, only makes him feel guilty. Because you disobeyed, because you failed, Here's here's what's going to happen to you. He never offers an opportunity to repent. If he was hearing from God, if he was hearing from an angel, if he was hearing from Samuel, surely the message would be, hey, you've lost your way. Repent. Turn this around. What what does the demon spirit say? You're a loser. Tomorrow you're going to be here with me. Number, that's number four. So think about it. Does any description of heaven, anything we know and understand about God, make it sound like we can be summoned up from glory, the glory of heaven, 
by a witch or a medium. Does that sound like heaven to you? Does that acknowledge God is all-powerful? Does that acknowledge God is omnipotent? It sounds more to me like a lie from the pit of hell. The medium, the witch at Endor, said she saw God's ascending out of the earth. Demons. It was not Samuel sent of God. It was a demon sent of Satan. And this was a practice forbidden by God. There are other forbidden practices that are related to this. Let me give you a quick list. Number one, enchantments. Speaks of the magical arts. Number two, witchcraft and sorcery, dealing with demon spirits. Number three, divination or fortune telling. Number four, necromancy, which is communication with the dead. Number five, magic charms, which is casting of spells. And number six, astrology, which is divination by the stars. Now listed like this, it seems like we, w- we would never consider any of this. But Satan is subtle. And this stuff has a way of creeping into our lives and, and creeping into the church. And it's serious stuff. It means we ought not to dabble in things like Ouija boards. We ought not to dabble in horoscopes. Do you get up every morning and read your horoscope? You're opening a door to demonic activity in your life. We're not to dabble in the zodiac. We're not to to, uh, mess with fortune tellers and tarot cards. We ought not to pray or to communicate with the dead. Now I know this can be a sensitive topic, but we're not to pray to dead saints And we're not to pray to dead relatives. Listen, Grandma is not interceding on your behalf before God. Jesus is. So pray to Him. If you're hearing from a dead relative, or you're hearing from a dead saint, I maintain it's actually a demonic spirit. Just like the demon that spoke to Saul pretending to be Samuel. And that ought to send a chill down your spine. It's another, it's another example of trusting in other things besides Jesus. The, the Israelites wanted a king. So they, they, were, they were beginning to trust in military might. They were beginning to trust in in royal wisdom. They were beginning to trust in other things besides Jesus. We we trust in other things too, by the way. Let me give you a little list. I like lists. Number one, humanity. We trust in the God of humanism, right? The human race is very self-sufficient right now. Science, medicine, Knowledge. The human race somehow has all the answers. We trust in the God of humanism. Second, we trust in our employer. Our employer can become our source. Some will sell their soul to their employer. It's amazing how we will do 
unethical things in the work environment. We'll work schedules that are detrimental to us physically, spiritually, relationally, all for the sake of our job. What else do we trust in? Celebrities. We worship complete strangers who we know nothing about. We listen to them and somehow we begin to to value their opinions on important issues like guns and national defense and who to vote for in the environment. Their lives may be unraveling behind the scenes, but we trust their opinion because they star in our favorite TV show or play on our favorite team. And they have way more influence than than you think. Number four, politicians. We look to the politicians for the answers. They become everything to us. The people in our party, political party, become the answer. But there's a very familiar verse in the Bible that we've all referred to, and we hear it around election time. If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sins, and I will heal their land. Now we should take note that God is addressing His people, not the politicians. Okay? We, we always want God to be addressing the politicians. But he doesn't say that. He says, if my people, who are called by my name, he sees, he's, not, he's not pointing the finger, his finger at the White House. He's pointing it at his house. The church. And we better take heed. Amen. How foolish could we be to trust a politician or a political party. Think about it. And we do just that. Maybe we need to get back to trusting God instead of humanity, instead of our employer, instead of the celebrities, instead of the politicians, or instead of money. Many that lack money worship it from afar. It's seen as their answer. If I only made more money. And then those that have it rest in it. They find their security and their strength in it. Money. So these are among the things that we trust in place of God. Just like the Israelites wanted a king. And Saul trusted in the sorceress at Endor. Now, people who trust God are very different. So that's the people that trust other things. The people who trust God are very different. I happen to have a list for you of how. Number one, five ways. Five ways that people who trust God are different. Number one, they accept suffering. It's all over in the Bible. I'll give you a couple examples. James chapter 1 says, Count it all joy when you fall into Diverse temptations or various trials. Count it all joy when you experience trials. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience. Let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire. You may be perfect and complete, wanting nothing. 
Romans 5 says it this way. We glory in tribulations. Knowing that tribulation works patience and patience experience and experience hope. 1 Peter 4.13 But rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's suffering. That when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. 2 Corinthians 12.10 I take pleasure in infirmities. These are all things you've never said. I take pleasure in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Hebrews 12 says, Now no chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. People who trust God accept suffering. For people who walk in the flesh, the goal is to avoid trial and hardship. They see adversity as God letting them down. You cannot truly trust God and think that way. People who trust God can see beyond the moment. People who trust God can see beyond their circumstances. Their faith does not hinge on answered prayer. Their faith does not hinge on how their situation turns out. They trust God. Period. Number two. We're talking about how people that trust God look different. They spend time with God. Number two. Romans 10, 17 says we're to spend time in God's Word. It's the source of our faith. The Bible says in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. In, James, in John 15, we're told to abide with Him. It's, it, so it's not, it's not complicated. You become like those you hang out with. Every parent of a teenager knows this. And that's why it matters so much who the teenager hangs out with. Because you become like who you hang out with. There's a reason husbands and wives start to think alike, talk alike, even look alike. It's disturbing. (laughs) But it's a fact. Hang out with Jesus and you'll be like Him too. The reality is the more time you spend with Him, the more you will know Him, and the more that you know Him, the more you will trust Him. People that trust God look different. Number three, they listen to God, and they listen to others. People who trust God don't have to be the smartest person in the room. Hear me, church. No one needs to hear this more than the church and the pastor. People who trust God don't have to be the smartest person in the room. People who trust God realize God can speak through other people too. So they they listen. They listen to the voice of God, but they listen to the voice of others as well. I've learned that there are many voices to listen to. Some are obvious and apparent, like your spouse. If I don't listen to Rhonda... If I don't listen to Rhonda, I'm a fool. No one has the advantage of her perspective. No one knows me like she does. 
I'm at least smart enough to listen to her. Now, then there are, then there are fans. Now, some people like everything you do. There are a few out there who love everything I do. I can do nothing wrong in their eyes. There are a few of those. And they serve as an inspiration and an encouragement to me. But they can't be the only voice I listen to. There are also foes. In the eyes of foes, I can't do anything right. They think I'm wrong about virtually everything. But I've learned that even your foes are worth listening to. They may not be 100% right, but they may be 50% right. They may be 20% right. I've had situations where people were critical and I, and I took a hard look at what I initially thought I was 100% right about and I discovered I was wrong. Even your foes are worth listening to. And then you have friends. Your friends are those who will not tell you what you want to hear. You could fill in the next line. They tell you what you need to hear. And in my life, these are the people who love Jesus. They love the church. And they love me. They will not avoid difficult topics. And, they're not willing, and, they're, and they are willing to work through conflict. Knowing that it can produce something good in us. Knowing that it can produce something good in me. Proverbs 27 says, Iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. People who trust God listen to God, and they listen to others. Number four, if you trust God, you limit distractions. You see, it's a question of priority. Now hear me, church. One of the most effective tools of the devil is distraction. In reality, he knows that he cannot get us to abandon our faith. So he distracts us from it. Work, kids, sports, leisure, travel, school, the new house, the old house, Netflix, hobbies, overtime, whatever. The effective Christian limits distraction. We recognize we cannot do everything, we cannot be everywhere, and still do what God has called us to do. Matthew 6.33 says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and then all these other things will be added unto you. It helps to look at our drivers. And this is easier said than done. But it helps to look at our drivers. It helps to look at what it is that motivates us. Here's some fun questions. Who are you competing with? Who are you trying to impress? Why do you do the things that you do? Answer those whys, and you may discover that some of the things that you do aren't worth doing, which will free up more time for ministry and discipleship. In the, in the modern world, more than ever, we need to limit distraction. And number five, finally, if you trust God, you will obey. If you trust God, you will do what he says. Saul did not trust God and he began to look to other sources. He wound up trying to hear from, from Samuel, an old trusted voice. 
after he died through the means of the witch, the sorceress at Endor. Trusting God speaks of faith. And faith is manifest in obedience. Obedience is what faith looks like. Matthew 7 says, Therefore, whosoever hears these sayings of mine, whosoever hears these sayings of mine, Jesus said, and does them, I will liken him unto a wise man who built his house upon a rock. If you obey, your life will be built upon a rock. So so let me bring this to conclusion. Saul quit trusting God. Eventually, he stopped hearing from God. And he was left to his own devices. And so he turned to an outside source. He turned to the witch of Endor to bring up a familiar voice. Saul was ripe for deception. Satan fooled him. And it cost him the throne. And it cost him his life. And every indication that we have tells us it cost him his salvation. If we trust God, we'll look different. If we, if we trust God, we'll be different. How? We'll accept suffering. If we trust God, we'll spend time with God. If we trust God, we'll listen to God and we'll listen to others. If we trust God, we'll limit distractions. And if we trust God, we'll obey. Would you bow your head with me? Lord, it's it's not hard to see how far Saul was off the beaten path. And we want to almost reach into the story and pull him back and put him on the right path, the right track. I guess it's a little harder to see when it's us. It's so easy to trust other things. We trust our own wisdom, our own strength. We trust our bank account. We trust our job. We trust the voices of of those of influence, whether it's a celebrity or a politician. And I'm sure God wants to reach into our story put us back on track. He would say, why don't you listen to me? Why don't you listen to my voice? And so, Lord, that's, that's what's impressed upon my heart this morning is, is how, how much I want to hear from you. So many outside influences, and not all of them are evil, but none of them are you. I want to listen to you. You're the one who knows the end from the beginning. You're the one who knows the deepest desires of my heart. You're the one who knows my dreams and my fears. Why wouldn't I want to hear from you? And so Lord, we just confess today as a church and as individuals that we've we've listened to other voices. We've missed the mark. Today, we're reminded how important it is to listen to you, to spend time with you, to obey, to accept 
the suffering that comes our way in the world in which we live. To listen to you and and to others, those people that care about us enough to tell us what we need to hear. Lord, I pray for a brokenness in the church. If my people who were called by my name will humble themselves. Lord, the midterm elections are coming up and so much hinges on the midterm elections. It feels like it's all riding on that. And then I'm reminded again that you're in control. That you're not up in heaven wringing your hands, hoping the elections somehow turn out right. So Lord, I look to you. We'll do our part in the earthly realm, but you're the answer. I'm not going to the witch at Endor and calling up a familiar voice. I'm looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of my faith. While every head is still bowed and every eye is closed, if you're here today and and you need Jesus, the Jesus I'm talking about here, you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you've never given Him your life, maybe you've been to church before, but you've never given Him your life, maybe today can be your day. If you'd like to give Him your life, would you raise your hand? And then I'll include you in my closing prayer in just a few moments. If you need Jesus in your life, would you raise your hand today? Raise it raise it nice and high so I can hear it. You can see it. Church, would you pray with me? This is the moment when, when the spiritual battle is taking place. Church, pray with me. You need Jesus today. Would you raise your hand? I want to wait one or two more seconds here, a few more minutes. You need Jesus. He's speaking to you in this moment. Would you acknowledge that by raising your hand so I can include you in our closing prayer? You're saying, Tom, I need Jesus. I'm not asking you to join our church. I'm just asking you to open your heart and your life to Jesus, the one who died on the cross for you, the one who loves you so much that he gave his life for you, the one who can forgive your sins, cleanse you from all unrighteousness, and make you right before his heavenly Father. If that's you today, raise your hand. All right, for the rest of us, by raising your hand, would you acknowledge that you've You've sought other sources. I know I mentioned the demonic ones. Those are, that's one camp. But then there's the other sources that maybe aren't evil in and of themselves, but we've, we've given them undue weight. And if that's you today, and you'd like me to include you in the closing prayer, would you raise your hand? Yeah, I, I see, there's hands. There's a, there's a few. I really believe that we could all raise our hand here. And if we're going to change, it starts with acknowledging it. Lord, I've looked to other voices. I've looked to politics. I put a bunch of weight on that. Or I look to celebrities. That person has influence on me. And what they believe, I tend to believe. Lord, I pray for, for us as a church. Lord, I'm a little disturbed that there wasn't 
more of a response there. I think we need to look at that list again. Lord, I pray you'd convict us. That we would look to you. That you would be our God. You would be our hope. You would be the voice that leads us and directs us. Holy Spirit, have your way in me. Lord, I, I want to be led by you. I want to be directed by your Holy Spirit. I want to walk in the center of your will. Lord, I pray that you'd help me to that end. Forgive me for putting undue weight on politics and, and, and suffering angst over the result of an election or the possible result of an election when I'm to cast all of my cares upon you. Forgive me for looking to people of influence and and celebrities and and those in the media as, as an influence. Lord, I pray that I would look to your word, that I would trust your word. Lord, forgive me for those times when I don't accept suffering well. Lord, I pray that you would just change me into the man of God that you've called me to be. And I pray that for my brothers and sisters as well. In Jesus' name.